morning friends, thank you for joining us today. We're going through the book of 1 John and we've come to the end of chapter 2. Uh, the title of my message today is Confidence at His Coming. So that's going to be the theme that we're going to see as we go through this section of scripture. How often have you felt so unprepared for a particular event? Usually a large event um, can make us really nervous and sometimes we just feel that we haven't really prepared ourselves for such an event. Maybe it was a big exam that you had to write, or maybe something at work. There was a big assignment that you were given, and you really felt that you were unprepared for it. Or maybe it was an award ceremony that you had to organize, or some other kind of ceremony, perhaps a, a birthday, or a wedding, or whatever. But isn't it true that at times we all feel so unprepared for the task that lies before us. Maybe as you go back to teaching, those of you who are teachers, you might have started this week and you just felt so unprepared for what you needed to do. Probably all of us have experienced that at some point in our lives. We feel that we really embarrassed ourselves because we, we didn't put in the work, the effort, the time that we should have um, to prepare for the task that we were doing. God's Word tells us that our biggest day still lies ahead of us. Jesus will come again. We will all meet the Lord. And will we be ready for that day? That's the question we're looking at this morning. Will we have confidence when Jesus Christ comes again? So let's take up our Bibles and read from 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to start at verse 28. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 28. And so, this is what John says. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If we know that he is righteous, we may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet, be, not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that when he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. But why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Last week, Michael Harbour took us through a section of, of 1 John, and he showed us that in John's day there were professing Christians. There were those who were false teachers, and John actually calls them antichrists. They were spreading false doctrines. They were teaching doctrines that were wrong about God the Father and about God the Son. And what made it even worse, what we, why we know for sure that they were false teachers, is that they did not persevere in their faith. And that was further evidence that these folk were not authentic. And so Michael challenged us and he reminded us that in the day in which we live, there is still the spirit of the Antichrist. There are those who are doing works that are against Christ. And we can become fearful when we hear and read about these Antichrists, and particularly with the, the idea that one day the Antichrist himself is going to come into this world. But we were reminded that as God's children, we don't need to fear. But what we do need to do is to stand firm. We need to represent our Lord Jesus Christ and stand firm in this day in which we live, in a day where there are false teachers and there is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now today in the section that we're looking at, John begins this section by saying in chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. So John gets right into it and he immediately tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. But his concern is not so much the details of his coming, but the fact that Jesus Christ will come again. And John's concern is that we will be ready for that day, that we will be living in the light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will live expectantly, and that when he does come, we will have confidence at that time. Now, some of you had to go back to school this week, um, some of you kids and some of you teachers as well, and I hope it wasn't too much of a shock getting up in the in the cold and the dark and going off to school. Um, I trust you'll get into it again. One memory I have of my school days is quite often a teacher would give us some work and um, then the teacher would leave the room and as soon as that teacher had left the room, we would push aside our books and we would start to fool around. But unfortunately, sometimes the teacher would come back earlier than expected and catch the shenanigans. And of course, there would be embarrassment if you were the one who was caught. John says that Jesus is going to return and that we should be living in such a way that there will not be embarrassment, but that we will be confident and that we will not shrink back, that we will be living joyfully in the light of his coming. 
and that we'll be doing exactly as what he has asked us to do. And so this morning what I want to do is from this passage that we have been looking at, I want us to see five essentials to be confident at the coming of the Lord Jesus. The first one is to abide in him. We need to be people who are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember what was said last week, Michael brought up the idea of abiding in him as it came up in the previous section. But once again, it is here before us that we are to abide in him. And so in chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, we see the idea of abiding in Christ. And what John, John does is, it's like he goes like a loving father who takes a little child and puts that little child on his knee and he teaches him a lesson. So the Apostle John takes us aside and he gently tells us this truth that we are to abide in Christ. And he says in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. If you've read through the writings of the Apostle John, you will know that this word abide is one that comes up a lot. It seems to be a favorite word of John. For example, in John 15 verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So as a branch that was attached to a vine, if it is removed, if it is cut off, cannot bear any more fruit, neither can we unless we remain close to our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot bear fruit if we are not having fellowship with him. The word abide means to remain, to continue, or to endure. And here in this section of God's word, it has the idea of remaining faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his apostles. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, that what that looks like is that we are to keep on believing the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he died for us, how he saved us, and we are to believe the truths of the gospel. It also means that we are to keep loving our neighbor and especially our fellow believers. It means that we are to obey the Lord and that we are to take seriously what he teaches us in his word. So we are to abide in the Lord in this way. Now, we know that it is the Lord who fuels our perseverance. As we see in Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, He who began a good work in you will complete it. But here in this section of God's word, the emphasis is on our participation. And scripture knows no clash between God being the fuel to keep us persevering and the command for us to abide in him. So these two ideas work synergistically as we read them in scripture. But the lesson that is for us in this command to abide in him is that we are to keep on doing the things that the Lord has commanded us to do. Don't get tired of them. Persevere in them. Like a marathon runner keeps putting one foot in front of the other, so we are to abide in the Lord. Why? So that when Christ appears, we will be confident when he comes and that we will not shrink back. We've been in lockdown now for over two months. How have you been doing spiritually? Have you been able to keep up the momentum or have you been slackening off? John's 
command, God's command to us this morning is that we are to abide in him so that when Christ comes, we will be confident at his coming. We don't know when he will come. It might be before we go back to work. But Christ is certainly coming. Will you be confident if he were to come today? A second lesson that I want to bring before us is that we will be confident at his coming if we are continually amazed that we are God's children. Now you may remember from a couple of weeks ago we pointed out that the Apostle John has often been referred to as the Apostle of Love. And he writes about love so often. And as he thinks about love now in this portion of the scripture, he thinks about God's love as being just so mind-blowing. It is beyond human comprehension. And that's what he says in chapter 3 verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The King James Version puts it like this. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. God's love is an arresting love. It is a stop in your tracks kind of love. It is a how can this be true kind of love. And I love the words of the NIV, the way it puts it in this verse. It says the Father has lavished his love upon us. And what is so special about this love, John tells us, is that we should be called the children of God. John says we are born of him. Three little words, but oh how precious. Born of him. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses says to God's people, For you are a holy people to the Lord. Your God, the Lord your God, has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. So why did God choose Israel? Was it because they were a great nation? Was it because they were nice people? Was it because they were talented? Was it because they deserved it? No, none of these. Moses says because he chose you, he chose God's people to be his treasured possession. He just loved them. It was an unconditional love. I love the words of the songwriter who says, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. Why would a holy and mighty God love us? Why would he set his love upon us? The Apostle Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would a holy God die for sinful beings like us? What a mystery this is as we think about it. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Spurgeon adds, while others are congratulating themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of the cross and marvel that I am saved at all. Friends, what an amazing love the Father has shown to us, that we should be called his children. I'm reminded of the words of 
our Lord Jesus to Nicodemus. You may remember how Jesus spoke to this religious Jew. He was referred to as Israel's teacher. And Jesus taught him the simple truths, simple spiritual truths about the new birth. And he said to Nicodemus that we are born not of human decision, but we are born of the Spirit of God. We are born of God. Now, one of these days, we hope that we're going to return to our normal meeting place in Boston. But supposing when that happens, a visitor walks in. I'm fairly confident that that visitor will be able to place certain children and say, oh, those children belong to those parents. Why? Because there's a clear family resemblance. We look a lot like our parents, don't we? For better or for worse, some of you might be thinking. Some of you may remember the words of the song by Paul Overstreet. This is what the song includes. I am seeing my father in me. I guess that's how it's meant to be. And I find I am more and more like him each day. I notice I walk the way he walks. And I talk the way he talks. I am starting to see my father in me. John says if we are God's children, we should start to resemble our heavenly father. In chapter 2 verse 29 he says, If you know that he, that is God, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So the lesson here is that we have been born again, we have become God's children, and that as we think about this new birth, it ought to have a moral influence. It ought to affect the way we live. We should be becoming more like our Father. And it should have a moral influence because we know that God is transforming us as his children. He is making us more like his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, when we sin, we know as God's children that we are sinning against the God who has been so good to us. When we sin, we sin against our Heavenly Father who has chosen us to be his, his possession we, when we sin, we sin against our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given his life for us. When we sin, we sin against the Holy Spirit. We grieve him, the one who has given us new life. We should go about our lives doing all we can to seek the approval of only one, our Heavenly Father. So as we think about our undeserved adoption, it ought to prepare us for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we've seen so far is that we are to be confident at his coming. How? By abiding in Christ. And secondly, by being amazed that we are the children of God. A third way John shows us that we are to be confident at Jesus' coming is to anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ itself. Now, we are told here by John that God has not revealed everything to his children. For example, when we're in heaven, what exactly will we be like? We don't know the details. This is what John says in chapter 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. We know that. But what we will be has not yet appeared. It hasn't yet come. We don't know for certain what we will be like. But then John reminds us of some truths that we can be a hundred percent sure of. For example, in that same verse he says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
So friends, we know for certain that Jesus will appear. He will come again to receive his bride. He will come again to receive you if you are his child. We know also that we will be like him, John says. We'll be like him morally. We will lose our sinful nature. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. No more COVID-19. What a blessing that's going to be. There will be no more death. We will have glorified bodies. And we will see him just as he is. That's John's promise to us. Job, we know the story of Job from Scripture that when Job was suffering, he was comforted as by the fact that he said he would one day see the Lord. This is what Job says in Job 19.26. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So the Apostle John reminds us that we are one day going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and we are going to see him with our own eyes. What a blessing, what a privilege that we will have that. And so John then moves on to say that we have this hope. We have a hope that the Apostle Paul describes as a blessed hope. Paul says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's Titus 2.13. But John describes this hope in, in chapter 3, verse 3. And it's not a hope that's like a maybe hope, or a, a hope that tomorrow it will rain, or I hope that in a few weeks' time I can go back to work. No, God's hope, God's description of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a hope that is something we can guarantee because it is a promise from the mouth of God. It is a blessed hope. It is a true hope. There is no ambiguity about it. And John says, because we have this hope, we purify ourselves. Because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, we get ready for that day when it will happen. Like the five wise virgins who kept their, their oil in the lamp and they kept those lamps burning. So we are to be ready, anticipating the coming of our bridegroom. There's a fourth way in which we see that we can be confident at his coming. And it is that we can appreciate his first coming. As we appreciate the coming, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we can have greater confidence when Jesus Christ comes again. So John reminds us that we have to think back to that time when Jesus came into the world to save us. J.I. Packer says these very insightful words. The traveller through the Bible landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. And that is so true, isn't it? All that we believe is in some way tied up to that hill called Calvary. John goes on to give us two reasons why Jesus came, why he, he came at his first coming. The first one in verse 5 is to take away our sins. John says, in him is no sin. Jesus Christ came as the sinless Son of God. He was the only one who was qualified to die for our sins because he was perfect and no sin was found in him. He took away our sins, John says. He came to be the sacrifice for our sin. He was punished for your sin, for my sin. 
And so John says they are gone. He came to take away our sins. We sometimes sweep things away under the carpet and we think, no, no one can see it. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and they are taken away. They are removed. The Bible says that he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. The idea is there is that they are gone. Peter captures this idea when he says he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Jesus came to die for our sins so that we can live for righteousness. Once again, the idea is that as we think about Christ's coming into this world to save us, it should have a sanctifying effect on us and it should prepare us for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John adds another reason why Jesus came into the world. He came, John says in verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. Genesis 3.15, which is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, it's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And there we see that God foretold that he would crush the head of Satan. Jesus in John 16.11 said that Satan, the prince of this world, stands condemned. Now, we know that the devil wins a few skirmishes against us, but we also know the final scorecard. We know the end result. We know that the cross was a serious blow to the head of Satan. But we also know that the next round will be his knockout. Satan, the Bible tells us, will be bound for a thousand years during the time of the millennium. And then his destiny will be the lake of fire. So what have we covered so far? How can we be confident when Jesus Christ comes again? We can be confident, friends, as we abide in Christ. As we are perpetually amazed by the fact that we have become the children of God by anticipating Jesus' second coming and also by appreciating and having a strong focus on his first coming as we do in the Lord's Supper when we remember that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. As we do this, so we remember our Lord and it prepares us for his second coming. There's one more one more way in which we can be confident at his coming, and that is to avoid the entrapments of the devil. We see this in verses 8 to 15. Now we tend to put people in categories, don't we? We say that a person is short or they're tall. We categorize people according to age sometimes. That person's a young person or an old person. Or maybe we sometimes see a person and say, oh, that's a foreigner and, or a local person. We put people in these categories. But the Apostle John really only sees two categories that are important. There are those who know God, and there are those who don't know Him. There are those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. Either we're alive spiritually or we're spiritually dead. We're in God's family or we're in the devil's family. Every other category fades into insignificance when we look at our position before our holy God. Now, John has given us a lot of details about uh, those who are in God's family, and now he turns and he gives a little description of those who are in the devil's family. 
And what are his children like? What are the devil's children like? John describes them like this. In verse 8, there is a habitual, unrepentant, and sinful lifestyle. In verse 8, John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, I like the translation here in the ESV because I think it captures the idea. As we read some other translations, it may not be quite as clear. But that's the idea, that those who are children of the devil have a habitual, unrepentant, and sinful lifestyle. There's no concern for righteous living. He's not talking here about acts of isolated acts of sin, but he's, he's thinking about habitual lifestyle. A lifestyle where there is no evidence of conversion, where there is no evidence of new life. There's no evidence of a person having God's seed or abiding in Him. The children of the devil make no attempt at loving the family of God. In verse 10, John says he does not love his brother. And then he goes on to give Cain as an illustration of one who is a child of the devil. And we all know the story of Cain and Abel back from the book of Genesis chapter 4. And Cain here is described as being of the evil one. And he's described that way because it is evident from his actions. His deeds were evil, John says. He was a murderer, verse 12. And it is clearly evident that Cain was a liar. God said to, uh, to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain answered, I don't know. There was no confession. There was no repentance. Only lies. Satan, we are told in scripture, is the father of lies, the deceiver, and his children habitually follow his example. Now we must remember as we read this section and go back to um, Genesis chapter 4, that Cain was no atheist. He believed in God. He even worshipped God. He came with a sacrifice to God. But here we see that his heart was evil. There was jealousy. There was hatred. And there was distrust. There was unbelief towards God. And friends, I think it's very easy for us to throw stones at a person like Cain. But what about us? You know, we can attend church. We can go to, go to worship the Lord. We can sing the songs. But that does not mean that we are born of God. It is possible that we could be like Cain, a pretending worshipper, hating others in our hearts, and not really believing what God says, not truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ with our heart, soul, and mind. We might have a head belief, but that doesn't mean that we have a salvation belief. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place where you know that you know Him because you have trusted Him to be your Savior? We can attend church but it doesn't mean that we are born of God. The call for us, as I see these verses in, in 1 John, is that we are to examine our hearts. John says in chapter 3, verse 7, My little children, make sure no one deceives you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Friends, don't think you're a believer if your life contradicts it. That's what John is saying here. This is so important to the book of 1 John. And I would make no apology if we repeat this statement every week as we go through 
this book because this is the central message of John's epistle, John's letter, is that we check ourselves, we search ourselves, and we ask ourselves the question, am I a genuine believer? The Apostle Paul says the same thing when he writes to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Friends, even as true believers, we know that Satan will not leave us alone. And how do we overcome temptation? How do we overcome his deception? We are to avoid being entrapped by the deceit, by the deception of the evil one. Well, as we read the pages of Scripture, it's clear that we are to keep feeding on the Word of God. Like the psalmist who said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's Psalm 119, verse 11. We're to keep feeding on God's Word. We're to keep praying every day, giving ourselves to the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who enables us to resist the evil one. We are to stay out of harm's way. By resisting the devil, and the Bible says he will flee from us. Someone once said, when temptation knocks, who do you send to answer the door? The old Adam living in you, or the last Adam living in you? Only the last Adam will secure victory. And a great encouragement I find as I read scripture, is that God promises that we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear but that he will make a way of escape. So to sum up what we've been saying this morning, the Bible teaches us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That includes you, that includes me. We will all appear before him, either the unbeliever or the pretending believer will appear at the great white throne to be judged and the end of their, their, their destiny is the lake of fire. As Daniel puts it, Daniel 12, two multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Or, if we are true believers, we will appear at the judgment seat of Christ, there to receive our reward. Paul makes this clear when he writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for him, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Friends, how will you fare on that day? Will there be joy and confidence, or will there be shame and embarrassment? Shall we pray? Our Father, we want to thank you so much that our Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he took them away, he separated them far from us as far as the east is from the west, so that we may live lives for his glory. We thank you for the promise that our Lord will come again, that he will appear, and we will appear before him. We thank you for the challenges in your word, for the challenges to be ready, to keep oil in our lamps, to be, keep them burning, and to live in a manner that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we will be confident at his coming. We just thank you so much for this time together and we pray that you will change us, that you will make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ and that we will long for that day when Christ will come again. We pray these things in Jesus' name.